19 through 24, confidence in Christ. I don't know about you or if you've ever been plagued by a bout of second guessing. Uh, you ever leave on vacation, you've done your triple check, and finally you hit the, ro- hit the road and then the wondering uh, begins. Did I turn off the stove? Uh, you haven't cooked on it in a week, but still you wonder, is it off? Uh, did I turn off the faucets? Did I lock the door? And the list goes on and on. My family has a new, uh, new second guess routine. About a year ago, we left for an extended trip and we exited the house as we always do. We have a routine. Kids load up in the car first, then Kenny and Heather do a final walkthrough, and then we close the garage door behind us, get in the car, back out, close the garage door, and we're done. Uh, but this time we missed something. Uh, Cameron, one of our two cats, had gained access to the house on one of the enters and exits and had hidden away in a place that we did not notice him. Cozy spot undetected. He always tries to find a place he's undetected because we don't have indoor cats. They sneak in and out. They're more free-roaming cats. Uh, We had no idea. We drove away. Um, The person we had coming to take care of the cats just comes at night. So our our cats are fed in the garage. Uh, If they're there, they eat. If they're not there, they're cats. So they'll make it, right? And so they come at night and check. Now, I have two cats One, the female cat actually hunts and is gone like a normal cat. Cameron is, I say lazy or elite, however you want it. He never misses a feeding, uh, doesn't hunt, doesn't do anything, but sleep around the garage and the house. Well, the person watching the cat was coming at night and and not seeing Cameron. And she, she knows the cat. And so she thought something's wrong. And she started calling for the cat uh, after three days, um, I would have waited the whole time, but either way, um, she's calling and she hears a crying from inside the house. So she texts Heather and says, should I go in and check? 100%, (laughs) you know, go in and check. Sure enough, there is Cameron crying, begging to be uh, released. Yes, I know some of you start feeling sympathetic for the cat. I want you to know what my first thought was. I'm like, please have her check the house and see if anything has been done to my home that I would not like. Um... (laughs) Everyone else is like, poor Cameron. I'm thinking, poor house. Um, To our surprise, nothing was found. And look, we're sticking with that reality. I don't want to hear your theories on this. I I need to know that nothing happened, okay? That's uh, all to build to this. We just took a trip uh, to Florida again over Thanksgiving, and Heather and I are leaving, and and we watched one time where Cameron got close to the wall, apparently not super smart cat, thinking about sneaking in. Uh, We stopped him from sneaking in, and then Heather and I do a check, uh, calling, screaming for the cat, making sure. And then as we leave, we make sure we look at the cat. This is the cat, garage doors, there is cat, right? We back out. What is the first thing we start saying to each other? This is me. You saw the cat, right? You, 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 you saw that cat. It was there. You're, you're sure it was outside because no matter how confident we should feel, we can't shake the feeling that the cat got back inside. Now, I want you to know this cat tries to open doors. It, it is a unique animal in that sense, or maybe it's just like every cat out there. But either way, always want to get him. But we can't shake the feeling that the cat's back inside. We second guess it. All that to say is that John is now walking into this portion of his letter 
moving on. He's transitioning from that mark of love. Remember last week he said believers are marked by love. And now he transitions to having confidence in Christ and how believers, and he's speaking to the church here uh, at that time, but also to us, how do we overcome our second guessing? Because the fact is doubts can crop up because as John the Apostle knew, our hearts may be hurting and unsure or our conscience tends to condemn us. And John wanted the church to have a correct, and I, I use the word correct as properly grounded confidence in Christ. And I say that on purpose because I do not want to give you a confidence in Christ that you should not have, nor did John. He has been confronting false doctrine. And actually, uh, when we return to first through third John, right after Christmas, we're going to be right at his discerning point where he says, discern the teachers and discern your doctrine. And he's going to be driving you to think about what you believe in. But he wants the church who are believers to be assured in Christ. He wanted them to see what real godly affections entailed and how they and we could have assurance in Christ and our relationship in Christ. And so he begins by reminding us that we will see a God reassuring. Look at verse 19 through 20. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. And he's pointing back to that idea of being marked by love. You know you're of the truth because you live out the characteristics of God and shall assure our hearts before him. So as we look at our characteristics and how we act in the faith and we see what God's or God's characteristics acted out in our lives and we recognize who we belong to. And then he goes on, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And I highlight in my Bible, uh, God is greater than our heart. I, I like to see that because the reality is this, we see our God reassuring. Uh, see, he begins this portion of the letter, again, connecting us with our love for the church and that as a mark of our faith. He's made that abundantly clear because biblical love on display indicates and we talked about this last week. When you see a love for the church, it doesn't earn you salvation. It points to who you are in Christ. It is, it is one of those litmus tests that tell us. But the problem is, is when we have doubts and, and oftentimes believers have doubts and doubts are possible. Our hearts are able to be hurt. Our conscience can condemn us. Why is that? Well, the fact is we might have as a basis uh, some wrong criteria, possibly we build from our emotions and faulty emotions at that. Or we listen to the world around us because the world and society is barking out commands and barking out doctrines. Uh, sadly, and I'll talk about this next week as well, but I've opened up books that are, are written by pastors who are trying to add to the gospel. It's a hint but it's false philosophy. And so it can make you doubt what you believe in. Uh, sadly enough, we can be wrapped up in the false doctrine of another religion and come to conclusions that are not based on an eternal reality. I put as a side note, this is why it's so crucial that our minds and hearts be filled with the truth of God's word and law framed and supported by his precepts because your conscience is gonna work from the standards that it has. And so as a believer, as a side note or a side application to God assuring us, I want to remind ourselves that we need to be permeated with God's word because that is the standard that's gonna set and allow our conscience to work from the right framework. 
However, when times of doubts come, as I just mentioned, we'll see our God reassuring his true children because ultimately, and I'm going to list four of these throughout the whole sermon, our confidence rests in trusting God's work and not our own. Your confidence is not ultimately in yourself. That's why he says this. And and again, I highlight this in every Bible that I read or touch. God is greater than our heart. When my heart condemns me, God is greater than my heart and knoweth all things. As one writer notes, if he has declared believers righteous in Christ, then they are righteous. And I'm going to repeat this over and over again. God is greater than than our hearts. Romans 8.1 states emphatically, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. As his true child, and I'm defining that, not pretend, not thinking, not peripheral, not nominal, but as a true child of the king, I cannot do anything that would separate me from his saving love. He knows more about my life, and I put in parentheses, and what's wrong with it, than my conscience can even know. And yet through Christ's blood, I have been forgiven. And so as I look and start out with this idea, and as John starts with this confidence in Christ, he, he lands on this idea that where do we have our confidence? It's by going to his work. Now, he did not write this so we would blanket apply it whenever we feel the prick of conviction. Oh, I feel convicted about what I'm doing wrong. Oh, it's all right. It's fine. It's all good in Christ. It's not, it's not to cover or, or wipe out the Holy Spirit's working in a believer's life. And it's not to be used on the unbeliever and say, don't worry about it, you're saved. That's the meanest thing you could do to somebody. Is have them in, in some way be struggling with their faith and your solution is to give them a human reassurance of their salvation. The point is our confidence rests in his work and not our own. And so as you look at this, let's not misapply it. But let's apply it for what John wants to do. He writes this for those whose conscience has been, has them second guessing their motive, wondering about salvation, unsure of their condition. And he writes it so they'll do one thing, and that's run to the cross. Run to the cross, run to Christ, run to what he's done. Our confidence does not rest in what I've done, it rests in what Christ has done. Run to the cross instead of playing mind games, run to Christ. And look, I know as we look at a group of 100 plus people, and really if you look at a group of 10 people, we all struggle in different areas. There may be people here who are are doubting their salvation and and need assurance of their salvation. And there's some people here doubting their salvation because their behavior is completely off. They live like the world and they have no assurance. And and we're going to see that they need to align their life with what God's will is. But there's people here who are struggling because their conscience is pricking them in the wrong way. Your conscience is not perfect. It's built by the standards and the precepts that are in your mind, and you can get confused. And the solution is not for me or any other believer to tell you, don't worry about it. The the, the point is, is that you should run to the cross. Go to Christ. Whenever there's a concern or there's a doubt or there's a weighing, run to the cross. Run to Christ and there you'll find comfort for an over-agitated heart and mind. And then I underline this. Or when you run to the cross, you'll recognize that you have a need for Christ and find eternal peace. See, the solution's the same. If you're a believer who's struggling and wondering 
and torn up and the world around you and maybe even churches around you and faith around you as has you confused and as your heart agitated, where do you get clarity and where do you get peace? At the cross of Christ. Not that you're getting resaved because you don't need to get resaved, but that you go back to what he has done and has accomplished for you. But as the unbeliever maybe is convicted and says, I, I don't know Christ. I don't know what's going on. I, I'm not confused, but their doubts and they're struggling. Where do they find their answer? Same place, the cross of Christ. And so you'll either have peace brought into your heart as a believer. Your over agitated heart will find calming and rest. Or as an unbeliever, you will go to the cross and you'll be confronted with your sin and you'll have a relationship then with Christ. Either way, the answer rests in his work and not our own. If your confidence in Christ has been shattered or it never existed, do not spiral into doubt, but instead run to the cross to find peace in your existing relationship with the Savior or begin a real relationship with him. That's how John starts this idea of, of our confidence as he builds from this idea of looking in our life and saying, are you marked by love? That's this characteristic. And you look and say, do I love the church? Is this, is this something that's a part of my life? Is this a, a characteristic that I'm showing that Christ showed because he died for the church? Then he moves into this idea of Christ reassuring us, Christ being greater than our hearts. But there's times our heart does not condemn us. So John now moves on to another component of assurance, which is how we see our God responding. Look at 21 and 22. So he's just talked about this idea of a heart condemning and a wrestling and a struggling. And now he goes on a beloved, he says. So this is an endearing connection. He didn't just throw it in because he wanted to write more words. He, he's grabbing their attention now. He's, he's transitioning. If our heart condemn us not, when you're not doubting, then we have, then have we confidence toward God. And then 22, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now we're looking at how God responds when doubt is not plaguing the believer. When we find ourselves walking in obedience and faith, he sets that parameter. We have confidence toward God. I was reading, uh, MacArthur wrote this about the word confidence. He says it means this. It's the privilege of coming before someone of importance, power, and authority and feeling free to express whatever is on one's mind. Now, how do you have confidence towards Christ? What he's saying is you're able to walk into the presence of God. Uh, for the believer, it means coming into the presence of our loving Heavenly Father without fear and with full assurance that whatever we ask, we receive from him. So here is this idea. He says, you have the believer who is struggling, who feels their heart condemning them, who is unsure. And he says, your God, your Savior is greater than your heart and your conscience and everything else. Run to your Savior. And then he says, there's believers who have confidence. They don't have a condemning heart or conscience. And, and he says, they come with confidence. They walk boldly into his presence to request and God grants it. But again, my confidence is not in getting what I request, even within the confines of God's will, because obviously if your life aligns with what God wants in obedience and faith, then your request to him will be in line with his will. But my confidence is still not in the fact that I get 
answered prayer, but instead our confidence rests in recognizing God's involvement. Now we're looking at it different. As we obey his commandments, John Stott notes this. He says, it is the indispensable condition of answered prayer. You want answered prayer? Obey. God never tells us to berate him or do as false worshipers do, cut yourself, cry, scream, act frantically. Well, the more emotional you are, the more likely God is to answer you. And we watch that in different faiths. In the Muslim faith, it is the persistence of saying the same thing five times a day, praying in a certain way. And they have in this mind, this methodology of prayer. That's not true prayer. See, God has has laid the condition out. You want to answer prayer, you live a life of obedience to him. When we live a life of obedience to him, then we do what pleases him. And the the fallout from that or the the benefit or reward is we see him act through us and our prayers. You see, there's an assurance of knowing Christ when we watch him using our lives to accomplish his will. It's not that I say to people, I'm confident in God because whatever I ask of God, God does for me. He's at my beck and call like a genie. No, I have confidence because as I pray in his will, I see God's direct and intimate involvement in life. As our lives align with his will and purpose, we walk boldly into his presence in prayer, seeking and seeing his direct involvement in fulfilling his will and purpose in response to our prayer. We see this active involvement. We watch our Savior fulfill his purpose. And how does he do it? Through us. But we see, and the confidence is we see our Savior working. We watch him. Our sincere desire to obey his commands is so we can please him, which then gives us confidence that when we pray, he answers. Watching that unfold erases second guessing and doubt. Do you wonder if you have a relationship with Christ? And, you, and, and John's saying, if you're obeying him and you're praying in his will and you're watching his involvement in your life, you don't second guess if you have a relationship with him as you watch him working through your life to accomplish his will. We know the one who knows all things and can do all things and we rest completely in his full involvement. I, I underline this because I'm a control freak. We trust implicitly in his control. We are confident in his involvement. I'm not confident because I can manipulate God and have him do what I want. Hey, God, you want to accomplish ministry? Well, then you need to do things my way. I've got a good idea, God. It'll work. If you'll just do what I want, it's in your will. It'll accomplish it. You see how twisted we can get even as we're praying or trying to pray in his will. But as I watch his involvement and I recognize it's about his control and it's not mine, it's not about what I get done for him. It's actually what he gets done through me for him. It's his involvement. And again, I'm resting in his control. I put as a question, I wonder though, if that describes our lives. I've already admitted that I struggle with this. So Think about that. As you look at answered prayer, is it a feather in your cap or is it an assurance that you know his presence? Because as you pray in his will, you see him working through your life and accomplishing what he wants. And again, our confidence rests in God's involvement, what he does. Now, John doesn't want to leave the topic of God's commandment open-ended. 
Uh, if there's anything about John, he repeats himself over and over again, making sure we get it. We've talked about that, right? He's just not laying out one argument. And so he's going to come all the way back around and he's going to say, what does this commandment mean? And, and actually the topic of confidence now moves to where we see our God requiring. God has reassured us. God has responded. And now God is requiring. Look at verse 23. Um, Because he talks about we keep his commandments and then he wants to make sure you understand what that commandment is. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. By the way, we just finished being marked by love and he's reminding us again that you're going to be marked by love. And now he's tying things together. He calls all believers to fully trust in the name of his son. And when you use the word name, we, we don't always grasp the full implication of that. When you're trusting in the name of Christ, it means you're trusting in the all of Christ, of everything about Christ. You're not being selective here. This is the world we live in right now. I believe in the Jesus of love. I believe in the Jesus of this. I believe in the Jesus of that. If you don't believe in the all of Jesus, you don't believe in the anything of Jesus. This is what Achan notes. He says, when you believe in his name, it is the divine son, the incarnate deity, the sinless human, the perfect atonement for our sin, the messianic savior. You trust all of him, not some, not part, or not even most. You trust the biblical Christ or you trust in no Christ at all. When he calls us, when God requires us to examine ourselves, we, we, we are to look at our faith in him, in his name. And that doesn't mean I just throw his name out. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus existed. That's not what they're saying. I believe in the everything about Christ. I believe everything the Bible said about him. Our confidence now rests in fulfilling God's requirement. Now we're seeing action on our party, calls for faith. By the way, as you read through the New Testament, you're going to see that phrase repeated. He calls for faith over and over again. What does he tell the, the father with the son who's throwing himself in the fire? Believe, believe, believe. You hear that repeated? Go through Acts and all you hear is repent and believe, repent and believe. I love pulling evangel- evangelical evangelism from Acts. How did the early church reach people? Repent and believe, repent and believe. Very simple, very straightforward. All through the New Testament, actually all through the Old Testament as well, he calls for faith. Now, obviously this call is directed um, to those who have not trusted, but it, but it continues to carry weight to the redeemed as well. Because remember, who is John writing to? He's writing a letter to the church. The implication is that this is to the redeemed as the majority Yes, he knows there's people who aren't saved in that church. That's obvious with all the false doctrine. And so he is calling to them and saying, you need to believe. But he's also speaking to those who have believed. There was this gentleman, R.S. Candlish, notes concerning those who have believed that they should, and I'm going to read his quote here, keep on believing. Continue to believe more and more simply because you see and feel it more and more to be his commandment that you should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, your belief should be shining brightly. Your, your grounding in Christ should be evident. It should be broadcast. That's my little extra. That's not his quote. Going on with his quote, unbelief in you who have believed is aggravated disobedience. And as such, it is and must be especially displeasing to God. 
It is his pleasure that his son should be known, trusted, worshipped, loved, honored as he himself would be honored. You cannot displease the father more than by dishonoring the son, refusing to receive him and rest upon him as redeemer, brother, and friend. Do not deceive yourself by imagining that there may be something rather gracious in your doubts and fears. Your unsettled and unassured frame of mind, it's like some kind of humility or low esteem of yourself. Beware lest God see in you only a low esteem of his son, Jesus Christ. And so obviously when he's saying, I want you to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, as he calls out to the unbeliever, he wants them to put faith and trust in Christ. But as he speaks to the broader church and he's writing to the church, he's saying, I want to see belief in you. I want to see it constantly growing. Our confidence in our Lord and Savior should be growing. We should find our feet perpetually more grounded. As one writer notes, a mark of genuine saving faith is that its level of confident trust in Christ only grows deeper and stronger over time. And as I write, our confidence is in fulfilling God's requirement. This is not to add a check mark to salvation or to faith. It's to say that you should look in your life and you should see a faith that's growing. You should trust him more today than you did yesterday. Not because it makes you any more saved, but it again points to the reality of your relationship in him. Our faith should be growing. And beyond that, he calls for love. If you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and you miss the idea of loving, then you've missed it. Okay, That's, that's just an impossible thing to walk away from. He says, I want you to believe in his name and the all of Christ. And I want to see in you believers a growing faith a bright faith, a known faith. And then he says, I want you to love the church. I want you to display a sacrificial love, a choice that you make lived out continually and habitually. I want you to keep doing this and I want you to make it a habit. And what is a habit when you, when you do something, it's second nature. And I, I look at my own life and, and I look at this idea of loving the church. And if I'm being honest, uh, I can't say that it's second nature to me. I know it's what we should do and I know it's something I want to do, but I can't say it happens naturally. Not that we should ever fall back to that, but, but he's saying, I want you to get to where this is a habit that you constantly do, that this is your normal reaction to the church. How do you respond to a difficult situation in church? John says love. Jesus said love. I want, it doesn't mean you're condoning or permitting wrong to take place, but that your first response to God's people is love. John Piper notes this, the one all-embracing commandment of this letter is that we believe and that we love. Believe and love. Believe in all of Christ, the false teachers, and we'll talk about this in in two weeks. Uh, They're going to be pushing this idea that, that he didn't come in the flesh, that a host of different things. And we've talked about it from chapter one. He's going to come back to this idea of believing in the complete all of Christ, what scripture tells about Jesus. And then this idea that we love. These are the foundations of our assurance because these are the evidence of God's work. They are the testimony of his spirit. I put here as a question, but do you have the assurance, the confidence that comes from doing what God requires? And I know I'm working through different types of confidence as we work our way back John starts with the reality that doubt can plague us and that we can struggle and that we need to be reassured. 
And then he goes this idea of prayer, a huge component of our spiritual life. And he says, as you watch God work through you, as you watch his involvement, that builds confidence. And then he dives into this idea of a commandment. He says, look at what you're doing that Christ commanded. Are you following through with the command? Do you see a growing faith? Do you have the assurance that comes from doing what God requires? Now, John closes this portion of his letter looking at the intimate connection we have with our triune God. By the way, you can't miss Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming here. Uh, John does one of the most masterful jobs, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, of constantly weaving that in. You read it in his gospel. uh, You read it in his letter here. And he's coming here looking at uh, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that speaks constantly of his forever presence with us. And through that, we see our God reminding connecting. Look at verse 24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him. So as we are obeying, we see ourselves in Christ. And then he says here, and he in him. Now he's flipping it. So as you see yourself keeping his commandments, you see yourself in Christ, and then you're going to see Christ, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Trinity there in you. And it says, and hereby we know that he abideth in us, by the spirit which he hath given us. And it's John's musical way of flipping it back and forth and saying, you're in him and he's in you and you know he's in you because you see his presence in you. And how are you going to see his presence in you? Well, we're going to see it by the work he does and accomplishes in our life. Here is the third person, the Trinity, indwelling our lives. And we know his presence by the fruit he brings from our lives. How do you know that the Holy Spirit indwells you? By the fruit he accomplishes in your life. We find that the one of the components of assurance is that our confidence rests in knowing God's abiding presence. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is conviction. When you're convicted that what you're doing is wrong, when you feel that prick and, and look, if you go to Ephesians, we talk about quenching the spirit and we silence the spirit in our hard heart. And so there's a host of things that we do that limit there what takes place. But we, we see the prick. The Holy Spirit is present and it's going to be evident in your life. If you look at me and say, well, Kenny, I don't feel any conviction. Then you should worry. Because you don't see the presence of the Holy Spirit. You don't see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look a little bit at that because as as the Holy Spirit works in our life, as one writer notes, he's leading and guiding Christians and assures them that they are children of God. What is the, the, the great gift that God has given us? He gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. That's unique for us. John Stott writes this, the Spirit whose presence is the test of Christ living in us manifests himself objectively in our life and conduct. It is he who inspires us to confess Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh. It is also he who empowers us to live righteously and to love our brothers and sisters. And side note from the quote, right? We, we talk about that. How are we able to love the church as Christ loved the church? Well, only with Christ's grace and his strength and his power through the Holy Spirit. So we continue on. So if we would set our hearts at rest when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for the evidence of the Spirit's working and particularly whether he is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commands, and to love our brothers. For the condition of Christ dwelling in us and of our dwelling in him is this comprehensive obedience, and the evidence of the indwelling is the gift of the Spirit. And he does as much flipping around as the Apostle John does. 
because it just is hard to break apart. When you read 24, it feels like he's saying, you're in him, he's in you. You know he's in you by his being in you, right? It's, it's, it's proving itself. And that's because that relationship is, I wouldn't say complicated, but so intricate, so involved, so connected. See, the constant reminding and prodding of the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us confidence in Christ. The Holy Spirit that abideth in us is the one who enables us to keep his commandments, which then bears witness to whom we belong. Think about this. You're marked by love. How do you love the church? By the Holy Spirit prodding you to love the church. And so as you love the church, which is a fruit of the Spirit, then you, you, you see his presence in you. And so they go in a big circle. And you might say, wow, you're, yes, as you do what God commands in obedience, you recognize your attributes and characteristics that are of God as his child. But in, in reverse, as you see that, you also see the, the ability to do that, not being of yourself. I'm never going to say this about you all, but I can say it about myself. If I look at me, I don't see someone who's amazingly nice and wonderful. And you're like, you can say amen. It's okay. You know, it's one of those opportunities to get me back. Cody, you missed it. Um, he was napping, his Germans. Um, you know, never paying attention to a Dutch guy. If you just listen once in a while, but either way, going around, uh, you'll see this and it's going to bear witness to you. But as I look at my life and, and I see him working as I obey, that's not the natural response of Kenny to obey God and do something for someone else. The natural response of me is to serve me. I'll cloak it as best I can. I'll make it look like I'm trying to help, but ultimately I want to take care of me. But as I see something different, it reminds me that this is empowered or, or brought about because of the Holy Spirit in me. And again, it brings about this assurance or confidence in Christ. As we do what he says, it reminds us or bears testimony to whom we belong. I belong to Christ because only a child of God would be able to do that. We've talked about it. The world at times will display a love Last week, well, that's a very loving person. They must be a Christian. Well, if you really broke down their love, you can see selfishness there. You can see manipulation there. You can see self-service there. It is only a child of Christ, a child of God, who is able to love as Christ would love, which is without any selfish motive or manipulation. And it bears witness to whom we belong. I put as a question, though, is there any evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Because we can circle the wagons, right, and go around and around. But in the end, verse 24 is saying you should see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You should see that. That is an assurance, a reminder of his presence and your relationship with him. Because only a believer has the presence of the Holy Spirit. I put as a close here, we can second guess a lot of things. And apparently I'm going to second guess a cat in a house for the rest of my my life. But as believers, we do not need to second guess Christ because when our heart condemns us, he is greater than our heart and reassures it. If you're going to remember one thing, I hope you remember that one. That's that's a verse that's jumped out at me ever since I started reading through 1 and 3 John to prepare for this series. And so it's been constantly there, highlighted and jumping out. When our heart condemns us, he is greater than our heart. When my heart condemns me, I know that Christ is greater and he reassures it. When we live in obedience, we can walk boldly into his presence in prayer and see him work through our requests. We see his involvement. 
When we obey his command to believe and love, to constantly grow in our faith and love, our level of confident trust in Christ grows deeper and stronger. And when our conduct in life reflect his character, we are reminded of his ever-present abiding through the Holy Spirit, which makes obedience possible, again, affirming our confidence in Christ. As I serve him, I'm reminded by that service that I'm his child. And then that service reminds me that I have the Holy Spirit, which reminds me that I am his child. And I hope you can see God's goodness and grace to the believer as he is constantly and in a layered format shown us how we are his child. But as we wrap things up this morning, I want you to do this. I want you to take a moment to examine your life and see if you are truly confident in Christ. And as I mentioned, I'm going to circle all the way back to something that I think is the the biggest takeaway from this. I know looking out here, there are people who are struggling, uh, whether it's doubting their salvation or doubting their motive or, or questioning their behavior and obedience. And I'm going to go all the way back. The misapplication for me to say to you, you're fine. Don't worry about it. You're good. You're good. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. This is what I want you to do. As you examine your life and your confidence in Christ and you find that you are not, I hope you're resolved to do what is biblically necessary and to do what is biblically prudent. And that is this, run to the cross. When your heart condemns you, there is only one that is greater than your heart, and that is Christ. And so as we have doubts, and, and, and obviously if there's somebody struggling and there's a need to talk, I would gladly sit down and chat with you and work through it. But we're going to run to the cross. We're going to run to Christ over and over again. And you might say to me, Kenny, that's too simplistic. I, I, I know Christ is my Savior. I know salvation. I know the cross. Yeah, well, go back there. You need to be there. You need to be at the feet of Jesus. If, if confidence in Christ and your relationship with Christ is on shaky ground, you need to be at the foot of the cross. You have to run there. You need to go back. And I'm going to drive to this. You need to drive to the work that he has done and not the work that you have done. Look, I second guess my motives all the time. I wonder if I'm not a controlling, manipulative person uh, because I am. And so whenever I start evaluating myself, it does not look good. It never looks right. The only assurance I have is Christ and what he did on the cross, his redemptive work. And so I want to encourage you as you look at this and work through all of these different ways that we have an assurance of being his child. And he's kind of repeated himself and kind of condensed it here again. Uh, But ultimately, when you feel your faith shaken, run to Christ. Satan wants nothing more than for you to look for some other way to feel assured, to look to some human or some institution or some whatever to make you feel good about yourself, some experience, some emotion, some book. You go to Christ. You go to the cross. And that's where we get our assurance. Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and study your word. We're grateful for the work of first through third John as, as John was inspired to write this and to talk to a church that in all honesty wrestled with a world that was as pagan as can be and wicked and vile, a world that was persecuting Christians. The temptation to hide their faith was, was high because the governments around them didn't care for their faith. And the false doctrines were coming in, the lies, the twists, the, the turns. And so the need to show discernment, the need to feel 
and know your presence was high on their list. We feel the same today. Help us as a church uh, to recognize that as we look at our relationship with you and we feel shaky or unsure that we'll go back to the cross, that our confidence will rest in you. As we are serving and, and our hearts are not condemning us, that we will look for the, for the indications we should and not, not be resting in ourselves, but instead see your involvement. See us responding to your requirements to recognize your presence. Help us, Lord, uh, to do what we should biblically and be confident in you. In your precious and holy name, amen.